Beloved, it is uh, Sunday morning, January 24th. We continue our study in the book of Romans called The Reign of Life. And we are looking, uh, taking a second look at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And let me read for us just a few of these verses. We've called them a fireworks of assurance that are blasting for the reader at the end of Romans 8. And uh, so I'll just read 28 through 30 and actually to the end of the chapter, if you know it at all, it's just a fireworks of assurance, and we will get to those, Lord willing, before February 28th rolls around. Paul writes, Romans 8, 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So let's pray, and we'll jump into the handout. God who predestines, God who calls, God who justifies, God who glorifies those whom he loves. How do we thank you this morning for your unfailing mercies, your great promises, the unspeakable gift of your son, Jesus, to us, sending your spirit to give us new hearts, hearts that see, that hear, that understand, that embrace the gospel and long to follow this Jesus, to love him, praise him, adore him, serve him, cling to him. Thank you for your work in us. To you be all the glory. I thank you for my precious brothers and sisters, the appetite you have given them for the word of God, the salvation you have lavished upon them, that these ones that I am speaking with this morning are glorified in your amazing economy because you've raised them up with Christ. You've seated them with Christ in the heavenly places. They are that secure, that safe in this universe as Jesus is seated, Heavenly Father, at your right hand. Take your word, apply it to our hearts, our minds, transform our thinking, awaken us, give us to think your thoughts after you. Have mercy on me, their teacher, that I may be faithful in these things and that the fruit of confidence, comfort, obedience, conviction, and glorying in you would come to pass as a result of our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We will go right to screen share, and this is our handout on the perseverance of the saints, seen from a human perspective, saints persevere to the end, from a a divine perspective, God preserves us to the end. We are at this page in the handout. The top of the page begins with this. The critical question, can a person who has true faith ever lose it? Why is that an important question? Because we see people come into the church and apparently walk with Jesus for a period of time, maybe some for the length of a lifetime, and then seemingly stop. Or you know people that you love that were raised in the church, you yourself taught them the faith, and right now 
they're of sound mind and sound heart, and yet they're not claiming Jesus, they're not walking Jesus, or they're saying that they're Christians, but clearly they don't seem to be bearing any fruit. So this is a very important question. Can a person who has true faith ever lose it? <clears throat> Here's the answer that we'll seek to unpack. If you have salvation, you'll never lose it. If you lost it, you never had it. Which, of course, backs the question up one phase to, okay, so what is true faith? That's why before we started this handout on perseverance, we examined James chapter 2, which told us what true faith looked like. When it comes to the question of can a Christian lose their faith, you often run into these phrases. You may have heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. I personally don't find that so helpful because it, it doesn't get at the nexus of the issue, which is those who are truly saved do in fact persevere to the end. And you've seen this used as an excuse, correct? You've seen someone living like a pagan and you say, well, I thought you were a Christian. They, oh yeah, yeah, when I was 16, the evangelist came to town and he asked people to walk the aisle and I walked the aisle and I got prayed for and at the moment I prayed to receive Jesus, I was assured by the evangelist that once saved, always saved. Take heart, take comfort. And so I got my ticket punched to heaven and with that ticket punched, I just went on doing what I wanted to. So is that person saved and going to heaven? Of course not. The ticket punch means nothing. What is critical is that we die in faith. We live in faith, we persevere in faith, and we die in faith. So I'm not wild about that phrase. You also hear the phrase eternal security. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not super hip on that one either. The issue, a related issue, is the issue of assurance of salvation. It's not quite the same as can a person who has true faith lose it, but it's related to this issue, and that's the issue of can you be assured of your salvation? So let's take a brief excursus down the assurance of salvation alley and look at essentially the four possibilities of uh, the question of assurance. Can you be assured that you're the Lord's, that when you die, you're going to heaven? Here are the four possibilities. One is the person who is assured but does not have saving faith. You would call that presumption. So this is a person, if you ask them, uh, if you die tonight, you, would you be certain you'd go to heaven? They'd say, absolutely, I know I'm going to heaven. And then you followed up quest with the question, okay, well, suppose you died just before God and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? This person would say, I've lived a good life. I'm a good person. I've tried my best. I've given as much of a, a sincere attempt at keeping the Ten Commandments. God should let me into his heaven because I'm not Hitler, uh, I basically was a good citizen, paid my taxes on time, et cetera, et cetera. Or maybe even I went to church. So why do I call that presumption? Because this person isn't leaning on the thing that actually qualifies them for heaven, which is Jesus. So they're trusting in themselves. And you could say of this person that they've never experienced true conviction of sin and righteousness. They've never come to grips with how profoundly sinful they are, and with that sin, God could by no means let them into his holy heaven. Nor have they been confronted truly with the standard for God's holy heaven, that is absolute and perfect righteousness. So this is a person who thinks, 
they wouldn't claim to be perfect, but they'd say, God, grades on a scale, I'm basically a B-plus kind of guy, I'm not Hitler, God should let me into heaven. So that what they need is a really good dose of reading the law of God to realize they're not what God has called them to be, and they need conviction of sin and the Holy Spirit to show them they lack the absolute perfect righteousness they need uh, for, for God's holy presence. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is the person who's not assured, they don't have assurance, but they have saving faith. And this is a person who trusts Christ. If God said, why should I let you into my heaven? They'd say, I don't deserve to be here. I have no claim in myself. I rest my plea on your grace. Jesus is the substance of your grace. Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my cleansing from sin. I cling to the cross. Jesus is all I have. This is a person with saving faith. They are trusting Christ. But for one reason or another, they're lacking assurance. That happens to us. And what that basically tells you is that faith is a struggle. One of the debates among Christian theologians over the centuries is the question, is assurance of the essence of faith? In other words, if you have true saving faith, doesn't it make sense that assurance would accompany it? So the person who I just described, who leans nothing on themselves but wholly on Christ, you'd have to wonder, well, why aren't you assured if you have such confidence in Christ? And there's different answers to that question. Our confession, the Westminster, says that assurance is not of the essence of faith. Other theologians see that differently. Anyway, here's a person with saving faith, but for one reason or another, they're troubled conscience, struggling. Faith is a struggle. They don't have assurance at, at, <clears throat> at that moment. Third person. This is the person who's not assured they're going to heaven and has no saving faith. So the mid-1980s, uh, I was doing a, a questionnaire evangelism at a mall outside of Philadelphia and uh, outside of Spencer's Gifts at the Willow Grove Mall, ran into this young lady and I had this little questionnaire, which were the two questions actually I've been sharing with you this morning. If you were to die tonight, I asked this young lady, hey, can I ask you a couple questions? She, she said yes. So my evangelism partner and I, we asked her, well, if you were to die tonight, would you be certain you'd go to heaven? And she said, no, I'd go to hell. Very interesting. I Rarely have I met someone with such assurance that they weren't going to heaven and the reason why. She said, I'm a bad person. I'm, I would go to hell. So we shared the gospel with her, and I don't remember the details of what followed, but... Here's someone who's in unbelief, knows they're in unbelief, has some sense of heaven and hell and God. They're not assured they're going to heaven and they don't have saving faith. Here's the fourth possibility. Someone who is assured of their salvation and that is accompanied by saving faith. This is exactly what God wants you to have. God wants you to see clearly the object of your confidence Jesus, he wants you to embrace the utter sufficiency of Jesus Christ for your justification. And along with that, God wants you assured that you're his. And otherwise, the whole second half of Romans 8 doesn't make any sense. Paul is bending over backwards in Romans 8 to gush assurance into our thinking. Uh, the Apostle John wrote at the end of his first epistle, 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know. He doesn't want a lot of uncertainty. He doesn't want swirling around in your thinking, does God really love me? Am I really going to go to heaven? No, we should be 
pressing into that place where we are assured because of the sufficiency of the object of our faith, and that is Jesus. Here's how the Westminster Confession put it. Our, some of the greatest theologians and scholars and pastors the world's ever known that met there in, in uh, London, uh, 14, eight, 1643 to 1648. Our Confession, chapter 18, says, Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish, yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. Sounds like that's right out of Romans 10. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and they will never be ashamed of that hope. So notice the qualifications here. Those who love him sincerely, those who endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him. So there's a seriousness about the Christian life, which sort of begs the question, hey, do you love Jesus sincerely? What would you say the answer to that question is? I'd say for me it would be yes and no. (laughs) Do I sincerely love Jesus? Yes, but I don't perfectly love Jesus. And thankfully, that's not what God requires to get into heaven, perfectly loving Jesus. We're not getting to heaven because of the quality of our love of Jesus or the depth of the sincerity of our love. Because of indwelling sin, we don't love Jesus perfectly. Because of indwelling sin, we still struggle with full, bridled sincerity. We're duplicitous in our motives and in our thinking. We're a mess still. Do we endeavor to walk in all good conscience before him? Most of the time, but here's the difference between vain conceit, hypocrites, people who have false assurance, and a basis for true assurance, and that is, no, I don't always perfectly, sincerely love Jesus, follow Jesus, but ultimately, it bothers me. In other words, I find that intolerable and I return to Jesus, whether it's after an hour, after a day, after a week, after a season. It troubles you that you don't sincerely love Jesus. It troubles you that you don't love him as you should. It bugs you and you are moved to do something about it. That would be the sign of the Spirit working in you. So here's one of the things I would counsel you as you have opportunity to talk with people about this question. Maybe it's a very real situation with a family member or a close friend at one time claimed to walk with Jesus and now they're leaning on the doctrine of uh, perseverance even though they're not um, walking the talk. My counsel is always make it personal. So if somebody, if we're talking about the question, can someone who has true faith lose it? you want to answer that question with who's asking the question? Who needs to know? See, if you're talking with somebody who is basically relying on this doctrine as an excuse to live for themselves, to live as an antinomian, doesn't matter what I do. Sin covers all, all, uh, grace covers all my sins, so I'm just going to go on sinning and trust that grace covers it. Well, that's not a person who truly is in union with Christ who understands they're not a slave to sin. Their affections should have changed. So I always want to make it personal. Who's asking the question? 
Who needs to know? And so the person asking uh, needs to know, here's the answer, you must persevere in a state of grace. So that's the other side of the fact that God preserves us, we must persevere. The Arminian perspective, these are the exact words from the remonstrance. Remember, that's the document set forth by some pastors in the Netherlands, challenging the prevailing view of Calvinism in the day. They submitted these five different points of theology, one of which was this. It's not altogether certain that salvation cannot be forfeited. So they did not believe in the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints, like the prevailing view of the reformers at the time. Their perspective was it's not altogether certain that salvation cannot be forfeited. Where does that come from? Well, these are Bible-believing people. The Arminians were Bible believers. They, they were just coming to different conclusions from their study of the scriptures than the prevailing Calvinist or Reformed view. It comes from the fact that there seem to be verses indicating you can forfeit your salvation. So, this is the difficulty that we face uh, here. Here's the difficulty when it comes to this doctrine. Here's why not all Christians, Bible-believing Christians, believe in the perseverance of the saints. There are verses indicating we persevere to the end. There are verses seeming to indicate you can forfeit your salvation. Both of those occur in the canon of Scripture. Notice I put, they seem to indicate. The reason I choose that word is, I don't believe these verses teach you can forfeit your salvation. But, when we give, the, give those on the other side of the debate the benefit of the doubt, what you run into when you read the Bible is you see verses indicating God preserves his own, namely, second half of Romans 8, <laughs> and there's a bunch of other verses we'll see momentarily. And you read your Bible and you see there are verses that, hmm, that's a head-scratcher. That seems to indicate I could forfeit my salvation. So, what do we do with those? How do we make sense of those? There are three options, and if there's a fourth, let me know, uh, you know, on your own time. Be happy to change the handout if there's a different way to attempt to solve this problem. So here's the problem. We've got some verses indicating, actually lots of them, that God preserves his own. There are some verses seeming to indicate you can forfeit your salvation. <clears throat> Option one is to say it just isn't clear. We can't tell definitively from the biblical text whether or not you can lose your salvation. And I'm saying parenthetically here, sometimes when it comes to an issue you're studying in the Bible, it's okay to say you don't know. And if you want to be a little bit more precise, rather than say it just isn't clear, if you want to be a little bit more precise, you could say we aren't clear. There's a doctrine called the perspicuity of Scripture, perspicuity of Scripture, which says this, the Scripture is clear in everything it teaches. If we have confusion understanding it, it's because we're not clear. So take the issue of who should receive the sacrament of baptism. Is it only those who believe, uh, credo-baptist, or is it believers and their children, we believe in paedo-baptism? Um, Bible-believing, serious scholars disagree on that. Rather than saying the scriptures aren't clear, we would want to say, no, the scriptures are clear on this issue. We're not clear. Somehow we're missing something in our interpretation. 
That's why we have disagreement among serious Bible believers. So one option is to say, when it comes to this issue, uh, we're just not clear. Uh, it's, it's confusing. So we're just going to land there. Don't, we, don't, we don't know. We don't know how to answer the question. Option two. The verses promising that true believers persevere to the end, God will preserve them, can't be trusted because the warnings prove you can lose your salvation. In other words, you take the forfeit your salvation verses as the clear ones and the, the ones that indicate seem to indicate true saints will persevere. They're the unclear ones. So if you're tipping the scales, on one side of the scale, you put all the verses that seem to indicate you can forfeit your salvation. On the other side of the scale, you put the verses garnered to indicate God will preserve you to the end. And the scale tips way high on you can lose your salvation. That's option number two. So you take the verses that say you can forfeit your salvation. They gobble up. They win the day. They have the last word against the verses seeming to indicate you can't lose your salvation. And so you see what option number three would then be, the opposite of that. The verses promising true saints persevere, you can be assured, we look to God who will preserve us. Those verses are trustworthy, and the warnings must be taken seriously, though the warnings do not threaten or contradict the doctrine of perseverance. So you see what's at stake here. Really, what this little section in your handout is about <clears throat> is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is your fancy 50-cent theological word that stands for principles of interpretation. Everybody reads the Bible with some hermeneutic in mind, with some principles of how they interpret it. And the two hermeneutical principles at play on this particular issue are one, one the, uh, a principle called the analogy of Scripture, and that is Scripture interprets Scripture. So that's why we're going to see how one set of verses are to be taken against the other. The analogy of Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture. And secondly, sort of embedded in that principle is take the obscure passages, the unclear passages, take them in light of those that are clear. And uh, Reformed theologians would say, when it comes to this issue, can you lose your salvation? Can you forfeit your salvation? Can we be confident we'll persevere to the end? Using that principle, we would say, what seems imminently clear, ultimately based on the doctrine of union with Christ, and the promise of God to save those that are his, what seems imminently clear is God will preserve his own to the end. We will persevere. That is imminently clear, and it is in that light we seek to make sense of those verses that seem to indicate you can forfeit, but we're not going to land, we're not going to let the scale tip over on the forfeiting end because the preponderance of the clarity of Scripture is toward the perseverance of the saints. All right, so it's, I'm just saying it's ultimately a question of your hermeneutics. So let's defend this position, what, uh, why should we have confidence in God's promises? After all, Jesus himself promised in John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That's a present tense. The moment you believe, you have eternal life. The presumption is 
you have it for a reason. So that you can be sure that when you die, you have it. Not so that you can give it away somehow or forfeit it. Okay. Um, we can't make any sense of the if, if we can lose our salvation. So I'm going to give you a page full of reasons why I believe you should be confident in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Number one, if man chooses of his own free will right, to be saved, the Arminian perspective, it's ultimately up to you. Then it makes sense that he could just as easily unchoose and fall away. So I think Arminian theology is consistent at this point if the decision is ultimately up to us then to, to get into the kingdom, to choose God, then it could be left up to us to fall away. Although I do want you to know there are some people who believe uh, this initial decision is up to us of our own free will, but once you're in, you're eternally secure. So there's a variety of perspectives on this. In other words, if T, total depravity, then P, perseverance of the saints. Total depravity proves that our salvation is a choice of God to spiritually raise us for the display of his glory and power. Nothing can thwart God's purpose. That was our Romans 8.28, who are called according to his purpose. What was the purpose God called you to Christ? What was the purpose of God raising you from the dead? What was the purpose of God looking upon you in a state of spiritual deadness and bringing you to life? What was the purpose of God circumcising your heart, taking out that heart of stone and giving it a heart of flesh? What was the purpose of God giving you eyes to see and ears to hear? What was the purpose of God creating in you by the Holy Spirit faith and repentance? What was the purpose of that? It was for his glory. And you see this in Ephesians 2.6. This is Paul's language of union with Christ according to Ephesians. Remember Ephesians 1, he began with all those spiritual blessings we have because we're in union with Christ. So in Ephesians 2.6, after he says he made us alive together with Christ, he then goes on to say and raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that here's the reason why we are walking spiritual Resurrections. Here's the reason why, when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, in which you walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of the prince of the air, and we're indulging the, the flesh, and we're by nature children of death. Here's the reason why he made you alive when you were dead, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, God loves to hold up broken, wretched sinners that he changes, that he resurrects, that he saves, that he gives a love for Jesus so he can say, look at me. Look at the riches of my grace. Look what I do through my son. It's ultimately about the glorification of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. God wants to glorify his son as the savior of a group of wayward sinners who are then called his workmanship. We're his workmanship, not our own. If the Arminian view is true, we'd have to say, I am my own workmanship because I got faith on my own. I got repentance on my own. No, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We covered that, uh, these verses a, a, a couple weeks ago. Do you see the point? Your salvation is about the glory of God, and God will not be robbed of that glory. Rest in that. Take comfort in that. Glory in that. Revel in that. Seek to know that God of glory. And you'll never want to depart from him. Could you? Yes, if left to yourself. Would you? Yes, if left to yourself. 
But this God of glory will not be robbed of showing himself as the one abounding in immeasurable riches and kindness for those who call on the name of his son. Okay? If T, then P. Total depravity proves the perseverance of the saints. God doesn't start this thing just to leave it to us to ruin it. So we rest on his promises. We rest on his goodness. We rest on his calling. You could put it this way. I would never be a Christian, never have any interest in Jesus Christ if it weren't for God doing this. I'm going to rest in that. Secondly, the Lord is for me. This is uh, affirmed again and again all through the Bible. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. So where's this confidence? Not in my abilities. It's not even in my faith. It's that the Lord declares his commitment to me. And uh, the the Romans 8 variation of that is going to be the, the end of the chapter that we'll get to. Paul writing, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will they not also with him freely give us all things? Now included in all things must be what? The ability to persevere to the end. That's got to be his gift, that he will preserve those that his son, that he did not spare his son to save. Third, We're sealed with the Spirit as a pledge. So if we can sort of undo our salvation, if we can say no and walk away from the Lord, having once truly been saved, it means that we're somehow breaking this infallible seal of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. There it is. Our salvation is all about the praise of God's glory. And to make sure we're certain of it, he gives us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of promise. So if you've got the Spirit, you've got the down payment of the future full inheritance of nothing less than the new heavens and the new earth, the presence of God in Jesus Christ. Number four, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. We also notice in the Gospels that Jesus prays for Peter, that his faith not fail. He does not pray for Judas. Judas becomes sort of exhibit A of that person who was really close to the kingdom, uh, was a partaker of the powers of the age to come, all these things. He took the sacraments with the Lord Jesus, but proved that he was ultimately reprobate and not a true believer. But boy, was he close. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I love this later on in Philippians 3.12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. This is the Christian life. Those who persevere Those God is preserving do so by means. We press on in order that. Here's the goal of pressing on. I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. (laughs) Don't you love it? Paul says, I am pressing on to take hold of Christ who first took hold of me so I could take hold of Christ. Yay! So Jesus will hold us because 
he holds us so that we can hold him. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, the Lord Jesus shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. Who's doing the confirming? He is. Why? He has a more vested interest in your salvation than you do, kind of, so to speak, because he wants you with him. He wants to, his father wants to hold you up as a trophy of his grace, revealing the glory of his kindness towards us. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Christ Jesus our Lord. So here are all these verses laying the weight, tipping the scales way high on we ought to be confident that the work God began, he will complete. His faithfulness. He called us into fellowship with his son. Jesus laid hold of us so we could lay hold of him. We're the work of God. Philippians 2, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why are you a Christian? The good pleasure of God. Why should you press on in your Christian life? Why should you pray? Why should you worship? Why should you give? Why should you sacrifice? Why should you be laborers and volunteers at the Laurel Pregnancy Center? Why should you, whatever, fill in the blank? Be for God's good pleasure. And I'll be preaching on this next verse uh, sometime in the next month. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Where does, the, where does somebody, somebody needs to mute? Somebody needs to mute. Where does the burden fall? The God of all grace. He called you to Christ. He himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish you. 1 Peter 1, we are protected by the power of God through faith. Paul asserts the Lord is faithful. He will protect and strengthen you from the evil one. We're not trusting our own devices. We're looking to Jesus and availing ourselves of the means Jesus uses to protect and strengthen us, which is fellowship, worship, reading the Bible, prayer, putting on the armor of God. He gives us the means through which his faithfulness to us is exercised. So by all means, take up those means. So when I tell you to take up those means, what side of the doctrine are we talking about? The perseverance of the saints. The saints persevere. When we look at God is faithful, we're looking at the other side, the preservation of the saints. God preserves them. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has ever taken you, but it's common to man. And God is faithful, who with the temptation will allow you the way of escape. Why? Because he knows sin is bad for you and he wants you to escape. He loves you. He wants the best for you. He doesn't want sin getting the better of you. He'll provide the way, God in his faithfulness. And then Christ actually, not theoretically, redeemed us from the curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. John 5.24, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. There's your present tense again. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So you say, okay, how do I know I'm really into life, spiritual life, zoe? How do I know I'm out of death, spiritual death, and I'm into life? Right there. I've heard the word of Jesus. I've trusted Jesus. I'm believing that Jesus is enough for my salvation. I'm believing that the only way to be right with God is through the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. My sin imputed to Jesus, receiving this as a gift, then turning and following this Jesus as Lord, faith and repentance, then I know that I'm in life. And we hear these promises from Jesus' own lips, John 6, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. 
And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So you say, Father, I want you to give me to your son. I want to be with you in heaven. I want to be worshiping you perfectly. I want to be through with sin. I want to be in an existence that is marked by nothing but righteousness and sight of God. I want to be with you. I want to be back in paradise. I want life the way you created it to be. So give me to your son. Well, of course the Father will answer that prayer. He will by no means cast anyone out. And of course, those that he gives to his son, the son loses none because you're precious to him. Jesus has come to rescue and to redeem a family of sons and daughters for he himself to enjoy forever. And in our enjoyment of him forever, we will enjoy each other perfectly without sin, without death, without messing it up. Variation on that, the, the uh, John 10, the, the teaching of the good shepherd, Jesus, the good shepherd of, of the sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. So that's how you know you're a Christian. Jesus has said, come to me, trust me for your salvation, and follow me. If you say, well, I want you to save me, but I'm not going to follow you, then you haven't heard his voice. You just want something that he's offering, but you haven't heard his voice. If you hear his voice, you know him as Savior, you know him as propitiation, you know him as your justification, and you follow him. And I give eternal life to them. And they shall not perish. Why shall they not perish? No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Safe in two hands, the hand of the Father and the hand of Jesus. If you know you've heard his voice, you want to follow Jesus, that's where you rest. Not in the quality of your faith, not in the quality of your uh, obedience, not in the quality of your repentance, as much as you should be improving on those, but you rest in the fact that Jesus holds you in his hand. Who can snatch something out of the hand of God? Jesus, the Son of God, God the Father. Nothing. That should give us full assurance of faith. The writer of Hebrews says, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Your sins have been put away by this one offering. You either trust it or you don't. If you do, you are being sanctified. He's bringing you to himself. So are there detractions from, uh, do, do we run into you know, problems as we look at this doctrine? Yes, because somebody's going to say, well, don't Christians backslide? Again, who wants to know? Who's asking the question? If you are, in fact, a backsliding Christian, trusting that, oh, I'm the Lord's, I'm safe, it doesn't matter what I do, he'll bring me back one day when he's good and ready, uh, we would need to kind of get in your face lovingly and say that is not a healthy biblical way to think about that. Uh, you don't want to use this doctrine as an excuse for backsliding. Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will have a fill of his own ways and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. So don't, don't, don't let the fact that, yes, we know Christians who backslide, but we need to go to them and call them back. One of the purposes of shepherding, the elder shepherding of the church, one of the purposes of church discipline, running after a wayward sheep and for their own sake, bringing them back to the fold where they're safe. Are there, in fact, phony professions of faith? Absolutely. The Bible uh, looks at these. It's honest about these. Jesus taught that. 
Paul's going to go on after the end of Romans 8, between Romans 9, 10, and 11, and show how visible Israel is not the true Israel. The true Israel are those who have a circumcised heart, so you can be a part of the visible church, but not be in the true church. And uh, the day when everything comes to light, when true believers, you know, the goats and the sheep will be separated, that day comes when, uh, when Jesus comes again. So, but we are in fact commanded to hold fast because we must hold fast. And then uh, one of the big detractions are those who apparently have fallen away and I have neatly and conveniently run myself out of time. Ha ha, because these are very hard verses. Um, basically, again, the Hebrews 6 passage has been variously interpreted. Um, I've got a little bit of a comment commentary on it for you. Actually, some quotes here by uh, uh, John Gruden, Wayne Gruden, and uh, John Frame. But so read this on your own. The, uh, I wasn't going to spend a ton of time exegeting them anyway. These are the the kinds of verses that come up. That again, we're not going to allow these to tip the scales and say, okay, these definitively teach you can fall away, and they're going to swallow up. They're going to gobble up all the evidence we've just seen for why true saints will persevere. God will preserve them. But there are some hard verses. It's good for you to know about them. There are some explanations. When the day is over, I just think we say, these are really hard to understand. Um, the one in Hebrews 6 that I've got in the middle of your screen, I know that a lot of scholars say, look, these are people that are really close to the kingdom, but they never were truly believers. I know other scholars who say, no, it's describing people who look like, who were true believers, but it's a hypothetical case and it's impossible and the writer goes on to say, I'm convinced of better things for you, so he's not talking about his audience. Either way, they're, they're, they're hard verses. Um, so I'm going to leave that at that. If we need to study that in more depth, then you can let me know. So we're going to move back into our text of Romans 8 next week and continue on and uh, see if we can't enjoy this fireworks of assurance that Paul lays before us, okay? So let me pray for our faith and for to the God who preserves us. Father, we ask that we would have an unceasing hunger for your promises and the Holy Spirit would give us an unfailing trust in those promises. They are, according to 2 Peter 1, great and magnificent, your promises. So we are people that live by promise. We're saved by trusting a promise, and we live by promises. And so Holy Spirit, help us, preserve us, protect us from ourselves, protect us from all evil. Give us to walk before you in all confidence. You want us assured. The, the Bible's clear about that. And we're also warned. We're seriously and soberly warned. So may we take these warnings to heart. May they be a wake-up a call to sobriety if this is exactly what we need. And may we be a church family who really helps each other in this, where we can be vulnerable, transparent, honest, and say, I'm struggling. I feel wayward. I'm weak. This sin is getting the better of me. And we can run to each other's aid, knowing that would be me, but for the grace of God. So make us a community of believers who are quick to bear one another's burdens, to enter into one another's failures, frailty, and uh, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, that none would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I commit my brothers and sisters to you this week for all vitality of heart, mind, and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.